Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Have you ever had this problem where you walk into a room and forgot why you walked into a room? Okay, good. I'm glad you also are nodding your head with you. You ever find that thing, like for those of us who wear glasses, you put your glasses on the top of your head and then you search for your glasses or you use your flashlight on your cell phone to look for your cell phone. Like we do stupid things like this, don't we? One time when I was, uh, when we lived in Greenville, two, two separate occasions this happened, I would actually go and prepay for gas and go into the store, pay for gas and get so absent-minded that I would just drive away and forget to pump it. So that happened to me twice. Sometimes we just get so preoccupied with whatever is going on, and I am especially prone to this. We, we forget what's happening. We forget the task for which we were set to, right? Uh, we become so focused on one thing that we forget to do other things. And I'm convinced this morning if I didn't have a wife to remind me, I would forget to eat and bathe and do all of those things, right? See, we are forgetful people. It's bound up in our nature, whether it's kind of an absent-mindedness or whatever else. It doesn't matter who you are. To some degree, you're bound to forget something. And particularly, as we've been talking in these last few weeks, one of the things that we're really prone to is forgetting some of the most important things. Even as we celebrate Mother's Day, I had to confess in a card to my wife, which she has not received yet, (laughs) how negligent I had been in honoring her. We forget important things. It's almost like when when the Lord brings people out of Egypt here in Exodus chapters 11 through 13, he wants to kind of instill these markers for them to remember the saving hand from which he brought them out of Egypt. In fact, I think that's going to be our big idea here this morning, is that God calls his people to consecrate themselves by remembering his saving work. God calls his people to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart by remembering his saving work. Even now we have these patterns of remembrance, right? Every time we take the communion bread, we drink the communion wine or grape juice or whatever it is, we bend down and we wash one another's feet or we we do the love feast together. It's an act of remembrance of the work of Jesus Christ. So God calls us to these patterns of remembrance so that he can bring about this issue of consecration as he describes it. I'm going to see this this morning in three different phases. In verses 1 through 2 of chapter 13, we're going to see that the principle is given. Every firstborn belongs to God. And then we're going to see these two practices that the Lord kind of gives to his people. In verses 3 through 10, the first practice he's going to give is that they remember their deliverance through a week without leaven, this feast of unleavened bread. And then in verses 1 through, or uh, excuse me, 11 through 16, they're going to give a second practice that is remember by redeeming your firstborn. Now, these things seem foreign to us. They seem far off from us. These are, you know, 3,000 years removed from us. But I think the principles that are laid herein can bring life to us. And we'll even see how they're kind of borne out in the New Testament as well. Let's start in in verses 1 and 2 of 
Exodus chapter 13. If you have a pew Bible, we're on page 55 in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. God directs Moses, and he speaks directly to Moses, to consecrate the firstborn to him. That's what he says in verses 1 and 2a. He says, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Now, that word consecrate, that sounds like a really spiritual word, doesn't it? And we might just stop and consider what in the world it means. It means it has particular meaning here in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. It, it designates those things that were designated to God. So if we were to consecrate things, they were specifically to be used by God. We'll see this word used in Exodus 19, where Moses tells the people to refrain from sexual activity because they are to be consecrated to him. In Exodus chapter 20, the the Sabbath day was to be consecrated unto the Lord. In Exodus 28, Aaron's garments, the high priestly garments that he wore, are supposed to be consecrated to him. That means that Aaron can't go out and kill a sheep out in the field or, or mow his grass or whatever in the consecrated garments that God had given him as a high priest. They were to remain in the tent with the other holy things. See, to be consecrated was to be dedicated to God's purpose. But notice that God is telling Moses that all of the firstborn of Israel are his. All of those things are to be consecrated. Because God had saved all the firstborn of the children of Israel when they were in Egypt. Now, the logic in God's mind is this. They all belong to me. I've saved all of those firstborn. Now they are mine. What God does in verse 2 is he delineates exactly what belongs to him. All types of firstborn things are his. Look what he says in the second half of verse 2. Whatever is the first to open the womb among people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. It's not just the firstborn sons, but the daughters and any kind of animal. And these are specifically to be given to God. He'll kind of treat this more broadly in verses 11 through 16, and later in the law, he'll bring more kind of clarity about this conversation. But here, the principle is stated plainly. These things which God has saved belong to him. Those people that God has saved belong to him. Whatever God saves, he owns. Paul gives this principle in 1 Corinthians 6. There he's talking about whether a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit can be united with a temple prostitute in the city of Corinth. And he gives this principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Simply to say that we are not our own to determine what we do with ourselves. We have been purchased. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, our life is not left to our whimsy. It's worth noting this morning that the mood of the moment, the cultural mood of the moment, is that we very much get to determine what we do with ourselves. It's my body, my choice, as we hear the refrain said. In fact, we have the audacity to think of the freedom we've received in Christ as self-affirming. Have you heard this? 
that Jesus loved you enough, loved you just as you were to die for you and to redeem you, that God loved me so much that he died for me to affirm all the things that I am. I remember coming out of my Christian university and finding online a, um, a group of, of, of homosexual Christians uh, that came from that university. And I was reading some of the testimonies, and sure enough, I came across the, the testimony of someone that was in my hall at this Christian university. And I can't remember the exact wording of what he said, but it was something along this. It was in quotations in bold. He says, if God is opposed to you being yourself, then I'm not sure I want to be Christian. This idea that God is endlessly affirming of me. The bottom line is this. If you are in Christ, you aren't yours. Whomever God saves, he employs for his purpose, such that every Christian who has repented is forgiven. He's filled with the Spirit. He's gifted for service. He's incorporated into his universal church. Whoever God saves, God has the right to refine and shape as he wills. God has every right to call his redeemed ones into seasons of suffering. That's why he tells Isaiah, hey, you're going to go and preach to these people and they're not going to listen to you. That's why he tells Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Other times he has every right to call us into seasons of blessing. The principle of what he says to Job, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or as Paul's testified, I've lived with much, I've lived with little, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A Christian, you are not your own. It's with this in mind, this principle, that because God has saved us, we're his, that he pushes into these two different rhythms of remembrance. Look with me at verses 3 through 10. Remember your deliverance. Uh, this is what God is saying. The practice is to remember your deliverance through a, a week without leaven. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be be seen with you, and no leaven shall be uh, seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Moses directs the people to remember this day. What happened in verses 1 through 2 is God spoke to Moses with this principle. Now Moses, under God's direction, is speaking this to the nation of Israel. And he says this in verse 3. He says, remember this day in which you came out of the land or the house of slavery. There's that word, right? Remember. Moses wants God's people to recall what he's done, not just for now, not just in these coming months, not just in these coming years, but for generations. 
Notice what happens here, this word that's repeated throughout our section in verses 3 through 11, this word day is repeated. They are to remember this particular day in verse 3. They're going to commemorate it for seven days in verse 6. And then they're going to remember it from year to year. That's the word yom to yom, year or day to day in verse 11 for future days. This idea, this rhythm is meant for them to remember this particular days for all the future days that they have. And so Moses gives these very particular instructions. Notice what Moses tells them to do. They are to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. Now, if you're like me, you get all these feasts and things confused. Like There's Passover, and there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Tabernacles, and all these different things, and it's good to kind of get them clear in our mind. Tim Chester helped me do this. There's a quote that will help us all kind of understand. He says, Passover starts on the 10th day of the month of Aviv and ends on the 14th day. So this is a four-day holiday. The Feast of Unleavened Bread starts on the 14th day and ends on the 21st. The Passover commemorates liberation from death since it reacts to God's passing over Israel and his bringing of, of death to Egypt. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates liberation from slavery since it reenacts Israel's hasty departure from Egypt. Remember that, that kind of history that was given to us in chapter 12, that when the nation of Egypt decided they were sick and tired of Israel, they said, leave. And so what Israel had to do is they had to pack up all of their stuff, and their bread was unleavened. They didn't even have the few hours it takes for leaven to work itself through dough. They had to get up and get out. So they took their bread, unleavened as it was, with them on their shoulders in their kneading bowls. So they ate unleavened bread for the first of the next week as they traveled. But more importantly, what Moses tells us here is not what to do, but why to do it. I'm a kind of a why guy, right? I don't like the how so much. I want to know the why. And Moses helps me out in verses 8 through 10. Moses tells the purpose. He tells it that we should retell and remember. Look at what he says there in verses 8 through 10. He says, you shall tell your son on that day. It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your head and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. If you notice, Moses gives them two different purposes. They're supposed to tell their kids and they're supposed to have this as a memorial. Moses wants these Israelites to retell God's saving work to their kids, or say, you shall tell your son on that day. It's the same language that's used in, of the Passover in 1226. See, Moses wants them to remember, not just to retell, but to remember. In verse 9, it shall be uh, to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. There's that kind of a form of that word of remembering, a memorial. Again, this feast is a sign to the Israelites themselves. It's like a, a string on your finger, right? Not, does anybody do that anymore? You tie a string on your finger to remember something. Maybe if you're over 90, that's something you still do. I don't know. Uh, but it was an idea of, it was meant to remind you of something. In fact, this, this idea of a frontlet that's in these verses here uh, is, is what is in mind. And we have a picture of what that is. See that red circle, the black box that's on his forehead? That was a frontlet. It was filled with scripture passages, and it was kind of the Jewish way of remembering these laws. And so these guys, they just put it right on their face so that they would remember, right? It was meant 
to be this constant reminder. Some of you are familiar with God's words in Deuteronomy 6. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one, and you shall bind them on your forehead. That's what Deuteronomy says. The truth is, because you aren't yours, you're called to remember and retell. We've already talked about this a little bit. The New Testament calls us to remember. Moses says, you know, this should be a sign to you that you should make a memorial and have it on your forehead, at your face, like frontless, frontlets, a constant reminder of God's strong-handed salvation. But Jesus tells us that every time we drink of the fruit of the vine, we should do it in remembrance of him. As Josiah said last week, Jesus transformed this idea of Passover and made it into this idea that we call communion. This idea that God passed over the house of Israel with uh, the, the blood of a lamb. Jesus becomes the true lamb. And when he breaks his body and spills his blood, we bypass the wrath of God or the wrath of God bypasses us. See, Jesus gives this to us as a regular pattern of remembering Jesus' sacrifice. And Paul says it should be celebrated until he comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Brian described this morning our two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we we do this. We do this in remembrance. We, We recognize that baptism is the sign of initiation into God's grace. It's not initiation in itself. It's a sign of that thing. And communion, the taking of the bread and the cup, foot washing, love feast, the whole thing are a commemoration of God's grace to us in Christ. And just to be honest, this is one of my favorite rhythms as a church. I love communions. It's funny because when I first started to work in a Grace Brethren Church, I was totally confused by the concept. But in, in, as a pastor, it's one of those times where I can recenter uh, our lives, our hearts, our minds. We all get to come and recenter ourselves around the provision of God in Jesus Christ. And we can go out of that place having recentered, remembered the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and be reminded of our own death and burial and resurrection with him. It's the beauty of this rhythm of remembrance. But notice that what Moses has in store for Israel isn't just about remembering. It's about retelling. Verses 8 and 14 say, You shall tell your son on that day. One of the songs we sing, Oh, Great is Our God, it has this line, so that we will make it known to our kids and we will sing about the gracious gifts you give. See, when Moses restates the law in Deuteronomy 6, he hits this same idea. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. The New Testament does it this way. It calls fathers not to exasperate their children, but to raise their children in God's discipline and instruction. See, it's our job this morning, parents, to disciple our kids. Nobody's going to do it for you. There's no youth group that's going to raise your kids for you. There's no Christian school that's going to raise your kids for you. There's no podcast that's going to raise your kids for you. You, father and mother, are God's given means for the discipleship of your kids. Now, I want to just be direct for just a second. There are some here who choose to homeschool their kids 
There are some here who choose to Christian school their kids. There are some here who choose to public school their kids. Let's just honestly acknowledge that none of these systems are inherently righteous. No one is outside of God's will because of the method of their education of their children. We want to just stop and just give warning to those who would require of others to have a particular schooling method. Just warn you to be careful. Be careful about binding another person's conscience to something that isn't explicitly stated in the Bible. Public schoolers, don't moralize the method of educating that you've chosen for your children. Homeschoolers, don't moralize your educational choice for someone else. Christian schoolers, don't make your Christian schooling a moral issue for someone else. See, if we bind someone else's conscience to anything but the word of God, we run risk of doing very serious damage. I was talking to Brian this morning. And Brian Spirito is a good friend of mine. Um, in fact, I can't, I don't know where he is. There's his bald head back there. In fact, I can say things about his bald head in a public audience, right? Spiritos choose to homeschool their kids. They're kind of in a, a, a bit of a turn right now, but they choose to homeschool their kids. And as we've sat down and Brian and I have talked about educational methods, I so appreciate Brian's spirit on educational matters because he's never spoken down to me. He's never talked about himself as more righteous because they do this. And he's always been open to talk about those those issues. I hope that he gets the same sense for me. I've always found that relationship to be life-giving and freeing. So I thank you for that. I love, yeah, thumbs up, right? Some of you are great parents. I love our homeschool families. Honestly, if I were to homeschool our kids, there would be a murder somewhere. Like, they would murder me. I would murder them. Something would happen. We would be in jail, most likely. So I have the utmost appreciation for what you do. And I'm so glad, hear me say this clearly. I'm so glad that God has called you to do that. I love our Christian school families. I love that God has called you into unique, life-giving community. I've told people who work at Troy Christian, I, I just love the culture that I see that happens there. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for your participation in it. I thank God that God has called you to that. I thank I'm thankful to God this morning for our public school families. I'm thankful for those who give their lives in working in educational fields to bring the gospel into very dark places at times. I'm thankful for those families that send their their kids into that environment with, with a hopeful witness of Jesus Christ and his lordship. I thank God for that. I thank God for all of it. And I think there's freedom in Christ to do anything that I've just described. Now, some of you might disagree with me. That's okay. Hey, there's been a lot of people who have disagreed with me over the years, and a lot of them have been right. It's okay for us to disagree about non-essential things, right? But can I just say, I would love to have a dialogue with you about it. One of the things that marks a healthy church is that we can dialogue about our disagreements. We can talk about the things that aren't central. 
And we can talk about the things that are central and how those two things relate. Centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins does not make a mandate for us in how we educate our kids. I would love to talk to you about it. See, on the whole, though, if we are to be consecrated unto the Lord, we have to be willing to remember and retell. Notice there is something, some still one more rhythm that that God wants to put in front of Israel so that they would remember and retell in verses 11 through 16. Read with me there. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be to the Lord's or shall be the Lord's, excuse me. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males uh, that first opened open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, or by a strong, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. See, Moses gives, again, specific instructions. You have to redeem your firstborn. You have to set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb. In verse 12, you're supposed to redeem them in verse 13. And he lists the cost, right? If you have a donkey, you're supposed to give a lamb. And later on in the law, in the book of Numbers, if you have a kid, you're supposed to buy them back with 11 grams of silver. That's how much a child is worth, about 50 bucks. Things have changed, huh? See, the point is, Israel was to buy these back from God. You might say, wait a minute, hey, hold on. That was what happened on the Passover, right? There was the sacrifice of the lamb on the doorpost and the lentils. They already paid for that. This is like double jeopardy. Why are they double billing us? Why is God double billing us for this? Well, first, the the lamb provided in Exodus 12 was for those children alive in that day. This is a provision for generations of future children that they would continue to have a sacrifice. But more importantly, what we see in the book of Hebrews, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins, right? That's what the author of Hebrews says. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These sacrifices are meant to show the importance of a coming sacrifice through Jesus Christ, a coming redemption that was going to come through the sacrifice of Jesus. But notice what the alternative is. If you want to redeem your donkey, but you simply didn't have the lamb, the spotless lamb that was required, the thing you were supposed to do was break its neck. This highlights God's purpose, right? It's not functional. God doesn't need another donkey. It's remedial. It's meant to teach us something. It's, again, pointing to the concept of death. The animal is either given to God or it's given over to death. Just like all things that stand opposed to God's purpose are. They're either given to God or given over to death. Look at how Moses describes why They are to redeem their firstborn. Verses 14 through 16, again, he gives the purpose there. He says, and when in that time, uh, when in time 
to come. Your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. See, Moses is told the purpose, or Moses is giving the purpose to the nation of Israel. He wants them to retell God's saving works to their kids. If verse 8 was kind of a truncated answer to these questions, verse 14 through 15 kind of opens up the concept a little bit wider. It talks about how God delivered Israel with a strong hand in verse 14. It talks about Pharaoh's stubborn refusal in verse 15. It talks about the Lord killing the firstborn in verse 15. And that is given as the final reason for this redemption. And finally, in verse 16, he wants them to remember, shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is a lot, right? It's only 16 verses, but there's a lot kind of crammed in here. And I think it helps us make sense if we notice a little bit of a formula in the way that Moses speaks. There's a chart that should be on the PowerPoint in front of us here. Verses 3 through 10, we see a phrase that will be repeated almost directly in verses 11 through 16. So in verse 5, he says, when the Lord brings you into the land. In verse 11, he uses the exact same phrasing. In verse 5, he says, which he swore to your fathers to give you. Verse 11, as he swore to you and to your fathers and shall give it to you. Verse 9, he says, it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. Verse 16, it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. Verse 9, this is where... It's important. He says, with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. In verse 16, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of the land of Egypt. See, this phrase that, that God has brought us out of the, uh, with a strong hand or brought Israel out with a strong hand is repeated some three times in this section. Whatever the rhythms of remembrance were to be, this is the, the concept that they were to remember, that God himself is mighty to save they were to remember that truth. They were to retell that truth to the kid, their kids. They were to make these rhythms a part of their life so that they could remember that God was powerful to actually bring about their salvation. See, the Lord is powerful to save this morning. This is what he wants them to remember. With a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. You know, it's funny, throughout the Bible, God uses this idea of his strong-handedness. The psalmist in Psalm 136 says that, that God struck down the firstborn of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. In Isaiah 59, and, and after kind of declaring all of these curses that were going to come on Israel, all of these hardships that were coming, God says in Isaiah 59, verse 1, that his arm is not too short to save. See, the emphasis is always on God's competency to save. God's hand is strong. It's capable to save his people from whatever circumstance they find themselves in. In fact, when Jesus comes along, he is to be named Jesus. If we were to kind of fast forward to Matthew chapter 1, the angel says to um, Joseph says, you shall call his name Jesus. That name actually means Jehovah is salvation. 
And then he goes on in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, and he says, he will save his people from their sins. See, Jesus has come as God's strong hand of salvation. When he came the first time, Jesus didn't come in this expression of wrath. He didn't pass from house to house, putting to death the firstborn. Jesus was the firstborn who was put to death. He was the redemption for you and I. And we do well to remember him, to remember grace, to remember the son's death and resurrection, to pass this on to our kids, to remember it ourselves, to resonate with it, to know that Jesus has taken my sin upon himself and given me the righteousness of God in Christ so that now I'm no longer condemned. If I faith in Jesus, I'm no longer condemned before the throne of God above. Now I've received God's righteousness. I've done away with my sinfulness because Christ has taken it and paid the fullness of that penalty. See, this salvation then is to be the reason for our obedience. This is what happens is from this point forward, God keeps using this phrase. He says, for God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he gives a statement about what he desires. Because God saved, he calls us into obedience. Think about this for just a second. God has just reoriented the life of the Israelites. And in chapter 12, verse 2, God tells Moses, he says, this is going to be the first month of months for you. That this month now is the beginning of your calendar. And this rhythm of Passover, it's like every other day of the 365 that exist in your year relate back to this Passover issue. And by the way, every time you have a kid or something gets born in your house, you're supposed to redeem it. So every day is is defined in relation to this issue of Passover, and every person is defined in this relation of redemption. God has so redefined the, the patterns of life for the Israelites that they are to think and see their world through this lens of God's redemptive work. And if you're in Christ, that's exactly what's supposed to happen to you. You put on new glasses in the Spirit, and you see all of life through the lens of God's blessing in Christ. That you are not your own. You're a a new creation. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. You're to walk in these patterns of obedience because Christ has purchased you. That's the joy we have in Christ is everything is new. When we get to the end of the scriptures in Revelation, Jesus stands up and he says, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the work of Jesus, that he takes the old, sanctifies it, consecrates it through his saving work, and he sends it out into his world to do his work, his will. The beauty of the gospel is that God takes something useless and broken and he restores it. I love those shows where you go and you find a piece of garbage on the side of the road that somebody's trying to sell, right? It's like a a dresser, missing drawers. There's like, it's totally on tilt. Like it looks awful. And some skilled person brings it back into their shop and they do two hours of work on it and they sell it for half a million dollars or whatever, right? That's what my Lord does. He redeems broken things. He takes stuff that's busted, broken up, 
He fixes it for his purpose and he sends it back into his world. We pray that God makes us those people that have a clear understanding of remembering their redemption, retelling it to their world. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would do that. Lord, make me, make us those people who remember and retell, who are passionate about your redemptive work, who want to see your name glorified and honored in this world. Glorify your name in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.